Chapter Eleven of Charlie to the Rescue. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charlie the Rescue by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Eleven. Tells of happy meetings and serious consultations. Whether Captain Stride executed his commission well or not, we cannot tell. And whether the meeting of Mrs. Brooke with her long-lost son came to near killing or not, we will not tell. Enough to know that they met, and that the captain, with that delicacy of feeling so noticeable in seafaring men, went outside the cottage door and smoked his pipe while the meeting was in progress. After having given sufficient time, as he said, for the first of the squall to blow over, he summarily snubbed his pipe, put it into his vest pocket, and re-entered. Now, missus, you'll excuse me, ma'am, for cutting in between you, but this business of the leathers is pressin', and if we are to hold a confabulation with the family about it, why— Ah, to be sure, Captain Stride is right, said Mrs. Brooke, turning to her stalwart son, who was seated on the sofa beside her. This is a very, very sad business about poor Shank. You'd better go to them, Charlie. I will follow you in short time. Mr. Crossley is with them at this moment. I forgot to say so, mother. Is he? I'm very glad of that, returned the widow. He's been a true friend to us all. Go, Charlie, but stay. I see May coming. The dear child always comes to me when there's anything good or sorrowful to tell. But she comes from the wrong direction. Perhaps she does not yet know of Mr. Crossley's arrival. May, can it be? exclaimed Charlie in an undertone of surprise as he observed through the window the girl who approached. And well might he be surprised, for this, although the same May, was very different from the girl he left behind him. The angles of girlhood had given place to the rounded lines of young womanhood. The rich curly brown hair, which used to whirl wildly in the sea breezes, was gathered up in a luxuriant mass behind her graceful head, and from the forehead it was drawn back in two wavy bands, in defiance of fashion, which at that time was beginning to introduce the detestable modern fringe. Perhaps we are not quite unbiased in our judgment of said fringe. Far it is intimately associated in our mind with the savages of North America, whose dirty red faces in years past were wont to glower at us from beneath just such a fringe long before it was adopted by the fair dames of England. In other respects, however, May was little changed, except that the slightest curl of sadness about her eyebrows made her face more attractive than ever, as she nodded pleasantly to the captain, who'd hastened to the door to meet her. "'So glad to see you, Captain Stride,' she said, shaking hands with unfeminine heartiness. "'Have you been to see Mother? I've just been having a walk before.' She stopped as if transfixed, for at that moment she caught sight of Charlie and his mother through the open door. Poor May flushed to the roots of her hair, and she turned deadly pale, and would have fallen had not the gallant captain caught her in his arms. But by a powerful effort of will she recovered herself in time to avoid a scene. The sight of you reminded me so strongly of our dear Shank, she stammered, when Charlie, hastening forward, grasped both her hands and shook them warmly. Besides, some of us thought you were dead. No wonder you thought of Shank, returned Charlie, for he and I used to be so constantly together. But don't be cast down, May. We'll get Shank out of his troubles yet. 
"'Yes, and you know he has Ritson with him,' said Mrs. Brooke. "'And he, although not quite as steady as we could wish, "'will be sure to care for such an old friend in his sickness. "'But you'd better go, Charlie, and see Mrs. Leather. "'They will be sure to want you and Captain Stride. "'May will remain here with me. "'Sit down beside me, dear. "'I want to have a chat with you.' "'Perhaps, ma'am, if I might be so bold,' interposed the captain. "'Mr. Crossley may want to have Mrs. May also at the Council of War.' "'Mr. Crossley, is he with my mother?' asked the girl eagerly. "'Yes, Miss May, he is. Then I must be there. Excuse me, dear Mrs. Brooke.' And without more ado, May ran out of the house. She was followed soon after by Charlie and the captain, and Mrs. Brooke was left alone, expressing her thankfulness and joy of heart in a few silent tears over her knitting. There was a wonderful similarity in many respects between Mrs. Brooke and her friend Mrs. Leather. They both knitted continuously and persistently. This was a convenient if not powerful bond, for it enabled them to sit for hours together, busy yet free to talk. They were both invalids, a sympathetic bond of considerable strength. They held the same religious views, an indispensable bond where two people have to be much together and are in earnest. They were both poor, a natural bond which draws people of a certain kind very close together, physically as well as spiritually, and both, up to this time at least, had long absent and semi-lost sons. Even in the matter of daughters, they might be said, in a sense, to be almost equal, for May, loving each, was a daughter to both. Lastly, in this matter of similarity, the two ladies were good, good as gold, according to Captain Stride, and he ought to have been an authority for he frequently visited them and knew all their affairs. Fortunately for both ladies, Mrs. Brooke was by far the stronger-minded, hence they never quarreled. In Mrs. Leather's parlor, a solemn conclave was seated around the parlor table. They were very earnest, for the case under consideration was urgent, as well as very pitiful. Poor Mrs. Leather's face was wet with tears, and the pretty brown eyes of May were not dry. They had had a long talk over the letter from Ritson, which is brief and to the point, but meager as to details. I rather like the letter, considering who wrote it, observed Mr. Crossley, laying it down after a fourth perusal. You see, he makes no whining or discontented reference to the hardness of their luck, which young scapegraces are so fond of doing, nor does he make effusive professions of regret or repentance, which hypocrites are so prone to do. I think it bears the stamp of being genuine on the face of it. At least it appears to be straightforward. I'm so glad you think so, Mr. Crossley, said Mrs. Leather, for Mr. Ritson is such a pleasant young man, and so good-looking, too. The old gentleman and the captain both burst into a laugh at this. I'm afraid, said the former, that good looks are no guarantee for good behavior. However, I've made up my mind to send him a small sum of money, not to shank Mrs. Leather, so you need not begin to thank me. I shall send it to Ritson. Well, thank you all the same, interposed the lady, taking up her knitting and resuming operations below the table, gazing placidly all the while at her friends like some consummate conjurer. For Ralph will be sure to look after Shank. The only thing that puzzles me is, how are we to get it sent to such an out-of-the-way place? Traitor's Trap. It's a bad name, and the stupid fellow makes no mention of any known town near to it, though he gives the post office. If 
I only knew its exact whereabouts, I might get someone to take the money to him, for I have agents in many parts of America. After prolonged discussion of the subject, Mr. Crossley returned to town to make inquiries, and the captain went to take his favorite walk by the seashore, where he was wont, when playing a visit to Sealford, to drive the leather's little dog half-mad with delight by throwing stones into the sea for Scraggy to go in for, which he always did, though he never fetched them out. In the course of that day, Charlie Brooke left his mother to take a stroll, and naturally turned in the direction of the sea. When halfway through the lane with the high banks on either side, he encountered May. What a pleasant pretty girl she's become, was his thought as she drew near. Nobler and handsomer than ever was hers as he approached. The thoughts of both sent a flush to the face of each, but the color scarcely showed through the bronze skin of the man. Why, what a woman you've grown, May, said Charlie, grasping her hand and attempting to resume the old familiar terms, with, however, imperfect success. Isn't that natural, asked May, with a glance and a little laugh? That glance and that little laugh, insignificant in themselves, tore a veil from the eyes of Charlie Brooke. He'd always been fond of May Leather, after a fashion. Now it suddenly rushed upon him that he was fond of her after another fashion. He was a quick thinker and just reasoner. A poor man without a profession and no prospects has no right to try to gain the affections of a girl. He became grave instantly. May, he said, will you turn back to the shore with me for a little? I want to have a talk about Shank. I want you to tell me all you know about him. Don't conceal anything. I feel as if I had a right to claim your confidence, for as you know well, he and I have been like brothers since we were little boys. May had turned at once, and the tears filled her eyes as she told the sad story. It was long, and the poor girl was graphic in detail. We can give but the outline here. Shank had gone off with Ritson not long after the sailing of the walrus. On reaching America and hearing of the failure of the company that worked the gold mine, and of old Ritson's death, they knew not which way to turn. It was a tremendous blow, and seemed to have rendered them reckless, for they soon took to gambling. At first they remained in New York, and letters came home pretty regularly, in which Shank always expressed hopes of getting more respectable work. He did not conceal their mode of gaining a livelihood, but defended it on the ground that a man must live. For a time the letters were cheerful. The young men were lucky. Then came a change of luck, and the consequent change in the letters which came less frequently. At last there arrived one from Shank, both the style and penmanship of which told that he had not forsaken the great course of his life strong drink. It told of disaster and of going off to the Rockies with a party of discoverers, though what they were to discover was not mentioned. From that date till now, said May in conclusion, we've heard nothing about them till this letter came from Mr. Ritson, telling of dear Shank being so ill and asking for money. I wish anyone were with Shank rather than that man, said Charlie sternly. I have no confidence in him whatever, and I knew him well as a boy. Nevertheless, I think we may trust him. Indeed, I feel sure he won't desert his wounded comrade, returned May with a blush. The youth did not observe the blush. His thoughts were otherwise engaged and his eyes were at the moment fixed on a far-off part of the shore, where Captain Stride could be seen urging on the joyful Scraggy to his fruitless labors. 
I wish I could feel as confident of him as you do, May. However, misfortune as well as experience may have made him wiser, perhaps a better man. But what troubles me most is the uncertainty of the money that Mr. Crossley is going to send ever reaching his destination. Oh, if we only knew someone in New York who would take it to them, said May, looking piteously on the horizon as if she were apostrophing someone on the other side of the Atlantic. Why, you talk as if New York and Trader's Trap were within a few miles of each other, said Charlie, smiling gently. They are hundreds of miles apart. Well, I suppose they are. But I feel so anxious about Shank when I think of the dear boy lying ill, perhaps dying, in a lonely place far, far away from us all, and no one but Mr. Ritson to care for him. If I were only a man, I would go to him myself. She broke down at this point and put her handkerchief to her face. Don't cry, May, began the youth in sore perplexity, for he knew not how to comfort the poor girl in the circumstances, but fortunately Captain Stride caught sight of them at that moment, and gave them a stentorian hail. Hi, halloo, back to, please, I'll overhaul you in the jiffy. How long a nautical jiffy may be, we know not, but in a remarkably brief space of time, Considering the shortness and thickness of his sea legs, the captain was alongside, blowing, as he said, like a grampus. That night, Charlie Brooks sat with his mother in her parlor. They were alone, their friends having considerately left them to themselves on this their first night. They had been talking earnestly about past and present, for the son had much to learn about old friends and comrades, and the mother had much to tell. And now, mother, said Charlie, at the end of a brief pause. What about the future? Surely, my boy, it is time enough to talk about that tomorrow or next day. You are not obliged to think of the future before you've spent even one night in your old room. Not absolutely obliged, mother. Nevertheless, I should like to speak about it. Poor Shank is heavy on my mind, and when I heard all about him today from May, I... She's wonderfully improved, that girl, mother. Grown quite pretty. Indeed she is, and as good as she's pretty, returned Mrs. Brooke with a furtive glance at her son. She broke down when talking about Shank today, and I declare she looked quite beautiful. Evidently Shank's condition weighs heavily on her mind. Can you wonder, Charlie? Of course not, it's natural, and I quite sympathized with her when she exclaimed, If I were only a man I would go to him myself. That's natural too, my son. I have no doubt she would, poor dear girl, if she were only a man. Do you know, mother, I've not been able to get that speech out of my head all this afternoon. If I were a man, if I were a man, it keeps ringing my ears like the chorus of an old song, and then... Well, Charlie, what then? asked Mrs. Brooke, with a puzzled glance. Why, then, somehow the chorus had changed in my brain, and it runs, I am a man, I am a man. "'Well,' asked the mother, with an anxious look, "'well, that being so, I've made up my mind that I will go out to Trader's Trap "'and carry the money to Shank, and look after him myself. "'That is, if you will let me.' "'Oh, Charlie, how can you talk of it?' said Mrs. Brooke, with a distressed look. "'I've scarcely had time to realize the fact that you've come home, "'and to thank God for it when you begin to talk of leaving me again, "'perhaps for years as before.' 
Nay, mother mine, you jump to conclusions too hastily. What I propose is not to go off again on a long voyage, but to take a run of a few days in a first-class steamer across what the Americans call the Big Fish Pond, then go across country comfortably by rail, after that hire a horse and have a gallop somewhere or other, find out Shank and bring him home. The whole thing might be done in a few weeks, and no chance almost of being wrecked. I don't know, Charlie, returned Mrs. Brooke in a sad tone, as she laid her hand on her son's arm and stroked it. As you put it, the thing sounds all very easy, and no doubt it would be grand, a noble thing to rescue Shank. But, but, why talk of it tonight, my dear boy? It is late. Go to bed, Charlie, and we will talk it over in the morning. How pleasantly familiar that go-to-bed Charlie sounds, said the son, laughing as he rose up. He did not always think it pleasant, returned the good lady with a sad smile. That's true, but I think it uncommonly pleasant now. Good night, mother. Good night, my son, and God bless you. End of chapter 11